Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. So here we go with our next message in Dr. Newfeld's newest addition to his teaching series on the Book of Romans. This third volume is entitled The Progress of the Gospel, focusing on chapters 9 to 11. Today we turn in our Bibles to Romans chapter 9, verses 11 to 17, as Dr. Newfeld presents a teaching entitled God's Eternal Purposes. How many of you have heard the expression, who do you think you are, God? Now when that question gets asked, several things are assumed. I mean, the first is the assumption that the person we're addressing with that question is acting inappropriately. They're either using power over others they ought not to use, or they're making judgment over others they ought not to make. But whatever the behavior that people observe in others when they make that statement, they're saying that behavior that they're witnessing is totally unacceptable. You know, but there's another assumption that's made when people say, who do you think you are, God? See, they may not know it, but it's an assumption that they have, and that assumption is completely and overwhelmingly correct. They are assuming that God has the right to act in ways that people must never act. Think about it. Years ago, Henry Morgenthaler, the famous Canadian abortion doctor, said that he was committing fewer abortions than God. After all, far more children are spontaneously lost to a mother than are the result of a procedural abortion. To that, any thinking person would respond to Dr. Morgenthaler, well, who do you think you are, God? See, after all, God has the right to take life. We don't. In the end, God has determined the death of every human being. But if any human being would therefore determine the death of millions, we would rightfully be outraged. No human being has the right to play God. Only God has the right to play God. Now, why am I saying these things? Well, I'm doing so because what we will read in Romans 9 today will, will spark outrage in some people. And if you're tempted to say to God, who do you think you are? He will rightly say, I think I'm God and there is no other. I have eternal purposes for my own ends and I act for my own purposes because I am God. See, now in our study of Romans 9 to 11, we've noted that these three chapters are a description of how God has chosen to cause the gospel of Jesus to advance in the world. We notice that God chose Israel as his chosen people, but not all Israel is Israel. That is, all of natural Israel was God's chosen people to be God's lesson book to the world, but some in Israel are chosen according to God's electing purposes unto grace. Now, with that in mind, Let's read Romans 9, 10 to 13. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purposes of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now, to assist us in understanding Paul's train of thought, please notice his use of the word purpose. God's purpose of election, says Paul. Another way of translating that word would be to say God's eternal plan or God's eternal design. Remember, this isn't our world, it's God's world. And as we're going to learn later, God has the right to fulfill his purpose, his design, his plan in this, his world. 
Indeed, if he's going to bring the gospel to the world, he has the right to design how the gospel is to go forward. And we've learned as we've studied this passage that God chose Abraham and then Isaac and then Jacob all to fulfill his purpose. Paul knew that true of himself. After Jesus called him while Paul was planning the arrest of Christians, the Lord met with a man named Ananias who had come to pray for Paul, then a new convert. And here's what God said to Ananias. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. In other words, God had called Paul to himself, and God had a purpose in that calling. Now, that's not to say that Paul had something to offer to God. It's, It's only to say that God had a purpose in calling him. I like what Douglas Moo says. He says, if God's plan depended on the vagaries of sinful human beings for its continuance, then indeed God's word would have fallen to the ground long ago. See, Douglas Moo thinks that the progress of the gospel is not dependent on our efforts, but on God's purpose. And, says our text, God's purpose in history is fulfilled because he himself elects people to be a part of that purpose. So you can see God never fails because he reserves the right to call people to himself according to his purpose. Now, it's in this moment that we need to become aware of the word election. Verse 11 says, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. Now, the word election or reference to the elect is a reference that's common in the New Testament. For instance, in Matthew 24, when speaking of his second coming, Jesus speaks of those who would try to deceive the elect as if that were possible. In Luke 18, verse 7, Jesus promises that God will give justice to his elect, he says. The book of 1 Peter begins with the words, for the sake of God's elect. And Paul in 2 Timothy 2, verse 10 says that in his own ministry, he endures all things for the sake of his elect. And right here in Romans 9, we're told that it is God who does the electing. Now, how do we understand that word? An election in our culture is a time in which we go to the voting booth to choose a new leader. And because this is our experience with elections, it's only natural that we think of ourselves as going into the voting booth and deciding whether we're going to vote for God that is serving and loving him or whether we're going to vote for something else. Imagine, if you will, someone entering a voting booth. He's presented with a ballot. One of the things he can vote for is Christ and his gospel. But he might also vote for another religion. Or he may vote for a life of seeking pleasure or pursuing wealth or you name the options. For many of us, that is the final explanation of how it is that we came to Christ. We voted for him or we elected him over the other choices that we had. Now imagine this the other way around. This time, it's not we who are entering the voting booth or doing the electing. God is doing it. He's electing unto himself a people. And he chose the apostle Paul. He chose Abraham. He chose David. He chose Jeremiah and so forth. And he chose those of us who have come to believe for his purposes. Listen to John 6, 44. Jesus is speaking and he says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And then several verses later in verse 65, Jesus returns to that theme. No one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. 
Now go back to a previous verse, same chapter, verse 39. Jesus says, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. And so according to Jesus in John 6, the Father gives his elect to the Son, and the Son preserves and protects them and keeps them from being lost. Someone's going to say, well, what about Judas? Well, listen to how Jesus addressed that question in John 17, verse 12. There he prayed, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them was lost, except the son of destruction, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Now, even though the word election is not there, the concept is firmly in place. God chooses, he elects his own, and he does so for his purposes. Having trouble with that? Well, if you have, you'll have to tear a lot of pages from your Bible because it's all over the place. Now, the idea of God choosing a people based on God's choice fills some of us with anger. See, we can't imagine that God would have the right to do that. Who does he think he is? Ah, yes. Yeah, we remember he thinks he's God. Yeah, but does that mean that those who are not elected are going to hell? Well, this is a lengthy discussion, so let me give you a shortened answer. We don't earn our way into heaven. We get there by God's election. On the other hand, We don't get to hell according to God's election. We earn our way there. In other words, hell is the outcome of human choices, and heaven is the outcome of God's choice. When we go to the voting booth, we choose rebellion and perdition freely. But when God goes there on our behalf, we go to heaven. So we earn and are responsible entirely for our eternal damnation. Don't you blame God for that. But God's eternal purposes in Christ are entirely responsible when we go to heaven. When I hear someone say, look, I don't deserve this. You know, my response is to say, you're right. You and I deserve far worse than what we're getting. We deserve death and we deserve eternal torment. But God has through Christ canceled out what we deserve and given us what he purposed for us in his only begotten son. We're wading in some deep waters here. Questions arise that I'm sure even Paul was confronted with. So let's entertain some of those important questions of God's fairness and even justice next. There's a little space left, but there is space left. And so I want to encourage you to consider joining us for our 2017 New Testament Greece by Land and by Sea Tour. That's right, 12 days in total, eight touring many of the key New Testament locations on land, and then four days sailing the Mediterranean, visiting locations like Patmos and Santorini. Join Dr. John Newfeld, Phil Calloway, Shane and Angela Weeb, and the Back to the Bible Canada team this coming April 24th to May 5th. For more information, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit our events page at backtothebible.ca. Now let's go back to the Bible with Dr. John Newfeld. The idea of God's purposes being fulfilled through the election of his people, well, that's filled a great many people with questions. And Paul anticipates some of the questions that we might have. So let's read Romans 9, 14 to 18. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. 
For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. There's so much to think about here, but in order to study this passage of Scripture correctly, we will be helped to see that Paul has taught this everywhere he's gone. Remember that Paul had never been to Rome, and so he wrote the Romans the things that he taught everywhere else. So wherever Paul taught this, he heard the same objections over and over again. And so what Paul does is repeat what others have said. If everything depends on God's election, is there injustice in God? Or can I be confident that God is just, or is he capricious? See, the idea of fairness, the idea that God's not fickle or impulsive or erratic or cruel or uncaring, that's important to all of us. Is God fair? Is there injustice on God's part? And the question of whether God is unjust, Paul answers, never or no way or no chance. And then he tells us why. In verse 15, the answer is that God will have mercy on whom he has mercy. Now, what kind of an answer is that? Now, it's very likely that we might understand his answer, but it is a profound answer. See, Paul's quoting from Exodus 33, verse 19. Back in Exodus 32, Israel had sinned. After God brought Israel out of slavery by devastating Egypt, they're free. They're traveling to the Red Sea, and God parted the Red Sea. He destroyed Pharaoh's army. Then he showed them his splendor at Mount Sinai, and he also miraculously provided food for them every day. And after all that, Israel makes a calf idol, rejects the Lord, worships an Egyptian fertility god that had been devastated by God already in Egypt. And so God comes down and kills 3,000 rebels that day. Now, why doesn't God kill everyone who has rebelled against him? Why not destroy them all? After all, that's what justice demanded. And the answer God gives to that question is the verse that Paul quotes here. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. If I choose to have mercy on some, this is my electing purpose. If I save some of those who deserve wrath, I choose to do so. But for those of us who ask the justice question, Paul calls us to consider. In Romans chapters 1 to 3, Paul has made clear that the entire world stands guilty before God for an infinite crime. And God, Paul says, is rightfully provoked against the entire human race. So the real question is not how can God punish the wicked, but how can he be just and have mercy on the objects of his mercy? How is that possible? And Paul answers that in Romans chapters 1 to 4, finally and ultimately in the cross of our Savior. The cross is the just and righteous explanation of why it is that God can remain just and have mercy on anyone at all. You see, the reason we have trouble with this is because many of us still have this secular notion that human beings are not sinful, and even if we are, it's not that big of a deal. But that defies the biblical analysis of our condition. Imagine for a moment that we've captured 10 murderers. Now let's assume that we have decided to let two of them go free. The question of justice is not why we didn't let all of them go free, but why did we let any go free? 
The question we began with, how can I be confident that God is just, is answered in the cross. He has let sinners go free, and he has remained just in the cross. But this might have left some of us frustrated. Yes, if if God's able to forgive wicked people in the cross, and if he is able to choose to forgive anyone he wishes, why doesn't he forgive everyone? Why does he elect only some? Listen to Paul's response in verse 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this reason I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. See, Paul takes us back once again to the story of the Exodus. And so let me introduce you to a man whom you have heard of, but probably never knew his name. His name was Amenophis II. We know from his early years that he was very athletic. He was very famous in all of Egypt for his abilities in archery that he had a fascination and a love for horses. We know that when he was still a prince, he was the commander of a powerful Egyptian naval base. We know that when his father died, he inherited a vast empire, which made him the ipso facto ruler of the world. In the first year of his reign, he mounted a huge and successful campaign against the Syrians and literally plundered them. We know he was an exceptionally cruel man a man who would hang his enemies upside down outside of the temple in Thebes. This man's brilliance, his athletic ability, his apparent good looks, his poise, his success, and his cruelty, and his power, all of these are well documented. And this was Pharaoh at the time of Moses. This was the real man of history. And Paul says, God raised him up and let him gain popularity and power in cruelty until he was virtually unstoppable and had only experienced success and feared no man or God. God patiently increased his power and his arrogance. And then he met an 80-year-old defrocked prince who showed up in a shepherd's garb, a man named Moses. And Moses looked him straight into the eye and said to him, Thus says the Lord God of heaven, let my people go. And then seven times in Exodus, the Bible says that God deliberately hardened his heart. That means that God used his arrogance against himself. So in fact, even after a series of plagues, Pharaoh still insisted on being unreasonable, even though that would eventually lead to the ruin of Egypt. So why does God harden some people? Well, first, God never hardens innocent people. He's just. Amenophis, according to Romans 1, had a revelation from God, the same revelation that is given to all the human race. God revealed his power and splendor to him in creation so that he was without excuse. Secondly, Amenophis had two million slaves in Egypt. Those were the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These people knew the special revelation from God. And Amenophis turned a blind eye and a deaf ear to both their suffering and their knowledge of God. This was definitely not an innocent man. God never, never hardens innocent people. Second, God is free to harden rebels for his own purpose. And that's what Romans 9 teaches us. There is no injustice in God if he manipulates an evil pharaoh to further his cause. You see, when God utterly ruined Pharaoh, he did it before the watching world so that the power and the majesty and the glory and the significance of God might be known to all the people who heard of this event. 
God hardened Pharaoh so that the glory of God and the gospel of God might be proclaimed in all the earth. I'm so glad that Pharaoh's heart was hard, for if it had not been so, we would never have known just how great our God actually is. And so verse 18 says, he hardens whom he wills, and he has mercy on whom he wills. God is free to pardon some rebels to further his purpose. And here I mean Israel. They too, as we see through reading the story of Moses, are a rebellious house. But God chose Israel as his people, even though they were sinners and idolaters. As we've seen, God's justice in pardoning rebels is explained in his cross. But I sense some of you are still dissatisfied with this explanation of things. You still have this nagging feeling in the back of your minds. I mean, if God chooses people apart from anything they do, either good or bad, well, isn't that just manipulating people contrary to their will? Well, maybe and maybe not. When he hardens rebels, the rebels are delighted because they are getting what they wish freely for themselves. But when he pardons rebels, (laughs) this is when he dismisses our free will. It was the year 1974, and I was a young man, and I hated God, and I loved myself. I was determined to go my own way and follow my own course of events. And here's where I get emotional. God took my fierce and hardened and determined heart and said to me, John Newfeld, I will not respect your decision to walk in the way of destruction. Instead, I elect you as my servant. And you see, I'm not saved by works. I'm saved by grace. Hallelujah. John, there's so much more that might be said, and many have said, but I'm not sure saying everything is your goal. What is your goal with studying this passage? Yeah, sometimes, uh, thank you for that question, Ben. Sometimes, you know, I think we need to content ourselves in saying no more than the Scripture says, even though there are other things that we still have questions about. But let's content ourselves in that. For me, the central issue is this one thing. When I think about the fact that I'm saved, I mean, this overwhelming thing that God has welcomed me into his kingdom, you and I need to stand before the throne and say, there is nothing that I have done to earn or merit this. Absolutely no good was found in me. It was God who had mercy. And the more we rehearse that, the more overwhelmed we'll be with gratefulness to what God has done. I think that's been my central point. Thanks so much. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. I wanted to share a heads up to our Back to the Bible Canada calendar fans. Our newest ministry calendar will be available in just a couple of weeks, and it's one that you're sure to treasure. In 2017, we'll be celebrating the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, so in recognition, we'll be making available the Defining Moments of Our Faith 2017 Bible Calendar. Every month, we'll focus on a unique location and event that shaped the Protestant Church. So much thought has gone into selecting every beautiful illustration of picturesque scenes across Europe and the history and the significance behind each location. As you would expect, the calendar will contain a one-year Bible reading plan, along with key scriptures and inspirational quotes and insights from Dr. Neufeld. This calendar has quickly become one of my favorites, and one I will use at home and in the office. So ask for your unique Defining Moments 2017 calendar today. 
And remember, we want to offer the first calendar free per household. So call us today to pre-order at 1-800-663-2425. That's 1-800-663-2425.